preaching this morning is my friend Ken Ramey, and uh, Ken pastors the kind of church I long to pastor one day. Ken pastors Lakeside Bible Church. Any guesses on why it might be called that? Lakeside Bible Church, and it's quite a lake. It's the kind of lake that uh, has a Starbucks on the lake, and you can boat up to the Starbucks, uh, IHOP if you prefer, right? I kid you not. It's awesome. Lifestyles of the pastoral rich and famous. Dr. Ken Ramey. You know, it's kind of how it is. In all seriousness, he does pastor Lakeside Bible Church. It is by a lake, but more importantly than that, it is a church that is committed to the gospel of Christ. It's a church that's committed to expository preaching. It's a vibrant church um, by God's grace. Uh, Ken has been there the last 14 years. And uh, I really like Ken Ramey because he has a heart for encouragement. He loves to encourage people with God's word and preaching. He loves to encourage people one-on-one. Uh, he just has a big pastoral heart. And uh, you spend any time with him at all, and, and you're encouraged. And so I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful for what God has done in his life. I'm thankful for that ministry. I'm thankful that he was with us at man camp. And I'm thankful he's here to preach God's word. So let's uh, welcome Ken Ramey as he comes to preach. Well, it is a joy and an honor to be here at Omaha Bible Church. This is a church that I've heard about for uh, many years now and uh, have only had high regard uh, for what I've heard and seen. And of course, I love your pastor. He's a, uh, considered a privilege to call him a friend. And uh, I, I trust that you uh, realize how blessed you are uh, to have a man like Pat shepherding your souls, uh, teaching you the Word of God and and just exemplifying what it means to to be extreme for Jesus. Is the guy a little extreme? Is that just as me? Or is he, is he a little extreme? Uh, in, in every possible way. I love it. I mean, if he was just extreme on the bike, that'd be one thing. But the guy's extreme for the Lord. And uh, I love that. Everything he touches, everything he does, he just goes all out for Jesus. And it's a, he's just an inspiration to me. Uh, he challenges me. He sharpens me. And uh, I just love being around him. And so I know you're blessed. And I also know you're blessed because of the men uh, in this church, uh, I've always believed that as the men in a church go, so the church goes. Uh, do you believe that? And uh, th- this is a man's church. What I mean by that, uh, this is a, you know, you hear talk about a seeker-friendly church. This is not a seeker-friendly church, Pat, but this is a, a man-friendly church. Uh, this is the kind of church that guys like to come to because they get challenged and they get trained and they get equipped and uh, I'm just so blessed by all the ways that, that uh, this church is committed to training and equipping and discipling and mentoring men. And uh, just a little bit of exposure I had this weekend to the men in this church. I think this, this church is in good hands. And uh, that this church has an incredible future uh, because of the godly men uh, that are leading the families and uh, leading the ministries. And so uh, just been super, super blessed uh, by my time here. Thank you so much. Uh, just for your kind hospitality, and uh, just for being a great example to us back in Texas. Lakeside Bible Church looks up to Omaha Bible Church, and uh, we want to be like you guys when we grow up. So um, anyway, we'll take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is the text that I've chosen for this morning's message. Uh, A familiar psalm, I'm sure, to most of you. Uh, This is one of my all-time favorite psalms, and I can't ever read this psalm without being thoroughly convicted, thoroughly challenged. And so let me just read it for you again, just to remind you of its content. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. 
Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, as people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them, they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said... I will speak thus. Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Father, we thank you for giving us your word to strengthen us, to equip us. Lord, we acknowledge that you are the author of this text by your Spirit through the pen of Asaph. We ask that your Spirit would come now and illuminate our minds to understand what Asaph was going through, what was on his mind, what his struggle truly was as he wrote this uh, psalm. Lord, that you would also make application of this to our lives today, that it would be extremely relevant to where we're at, And, uh, Lord, that we will be able to walk away this morning with truth, Lord, for our souls. Lord, that you would comfort those who need to be comforted this morning. Lord, that you would convict those who need to be convicted this morning. But most of all, Lord, you would conform all of us more to the image of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, there's a profound sentence in J.I. Packer's classic work, Knowing God. I'm sure many of you have read that book, but this sentence, I think, perfectly summarizes what Asaph was describing here in Psalm 73. Packer said this, quote, every Christian is susceptible to occasional spells of derangement when the powers of temptation press their minds out of shape, and these, by God's mercy, do not last. 
Let me read that again. Every Christian is susceptible to occasional spells of derangement when the powers of temptation press their minds out of shape and these, by God's mercy, do not last. That's exactly what this psalm was all about. Here Asaph was humbly and honestly confessing a spell of derangement that he had experienced when the powers of temptation had pressed his mind out of shape. He wasn't thinking clearly. He was irrational. He was unstable spiritually. And how God mercifully brought him back to his senses. This psalm is referred to as a psalm of disorientation. There's a number of those psalms where you can tell the the author was disoriented spiritually. He kind of lost his spiritual bearings or was kind of lost as he wrote this. But few temptations, I think, are more powerful in pressing our minds out of shape and and causing us to become spiritually disoriented and and disillusioned and, and triggering a spell of derangement than the temptation to envy the wicked. And that's why it's so important that we heed the wise admonition given in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms and the Proverbs, to never envy the wicked. Let me just quickly trace this theme in these two books. Notice Psalm 37, verse 1. Psalm 37, verse 1. David said, Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 31, says this, Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. Proverbs 23, 17, says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Chapter 24, verse 1, Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. And then Proverbs 24, verse 19 Do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. And so we're commanded, exhorted, not to envy the wicked. And so we should ask ourselves, well, what does that actually mean? What does it it mean to envy the wicked? Well, we know what it means to envy, right? It means to feel discontent or a sense of ill will because of another person's looks or talents or possessions or advantages. It's wishing that you had what someone else had or wishing you could enjoy what someone else enjoys. And so to envy the wicked means that we feel a a sense of discontent whenever we consider what they have and what they do. It's wishing that we had what they had and, and wishing we could do what they do. And God says we shouldn't envy the wicked. It's one of the most foolish sins that we could ever commit, and yet it's a sin that has tempted the strength of many a saint. And I have to confess to you this morning that there are moments in my life when I foolishly and and sinfully envy the wicked. I mean, I I honestly hate to have to admit it to you, but it's true that there's something intriguing to me about the the carefree lifestyles of the the rich and famous. And too often I find myself when I'm reading the the news, whether it's in a newspaper or a magazine or on the Internet or watching the news on TV that that glamorize the ungodly lifestyles of of, of famous athletes or movie stars or musicians or millionaires, uh, how how much they spend on their house, uh, what, what kind of car they drive, who they're dating, who they're divorcing. Uh, what is their latest immoral escapade and, and I find my heart drawn to those kinds of things 
And frankly, it makes me wonder at times what it would be like to be them. There's a certain sinful appeal to me about being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want. And there have been a few moments, just a few, in my life when I felt like just just punting my faith and just going for it. You say, man, you're a pastor. <laughs> what is your problem, man? You're, you're not supposed to think like that. Well, can I be honest with you this morning? I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. I've been a Christian most of my life. I'm, I'm truly thankful that God graciously saved me at a young age and was, was able to, by His grace, be kept from uh, many sinful things that so many people have to deal with in life. And from my youth, I've, I've strived to live a, a pure and holy life that's pleasing to the Lord as a, as a pastor for these last you know, 15, 20 years. I, I've sought to regularly buffet myself, buffet my body, lest after I preached to others, I myself would be disqualified. But sometimes the ministry can be, be rough. And uh, there, there's, this, there's, there's, there's always too much to do, not enough time. There's all these burdens that you alone carry as a pastor. There's, there's lots of early mornings, lots of late nights. There's many days that it doesn't seem like anything goes right. And it's easy to get feeling burned out and to get tired and discouraged and, and to lose your joy. And, and that's usually when the world starts looking really good. And you start to compare yourself to others who are out there just fulfilling every sinful urge that they have and, and thoroughly enjoying themselves in the process. And you begin to say, your, say to yourself, well, well, wait a minute, this is not how it's supposed to work. Here I am faithfully serving the Lord and I'm, I'm facing all these challenges and all these struggles and, and these guys are just out there living it up in sin and they don't seem to have a care in the world. And at that point, it's easy to to question whether or not it really pays to stay true to God. And you begin to wonder, am I missing out on something? Am I, am I being ripped off here? Is it really worth it all? Have I been keeping myself pure for nothing? And that's when we're most susceptible to, to slipping or stumbling spiritually. Well, by now, you're probably wondering, where did Pat get this guy, man? What is his problem? Pat, get up here. He's starting to freak me out here. Um, Listen, you need to know that I am not alone in my struggle. Because Asaph struggled with the same sort of thing, and he described this, this great soul struggle of his in Psalm 73. And it's for me, this is so refreshing how vulnerable, how transparent he was in confessing his sin of envying the wicked and how it almost caused his faith in God to falter. As you know, Asaph was a Levite who David had appointed as the head worship leader of Israel. He led uh, the temple choir and he played uh, loud sounding cymbals, it says in the scriptures. He also wrote music for them to sing. Here was one of the songs, Psalm 73. He wrote uh, Psalm 73 through Psalm 83. He also wrote, wrote Psalm 50. I think it's important that we, uh, that we note here that Asaph was a godly man who, who most likely had been raised in a godly home. He was a mature saint with, 
with a rich spiritual heritage. He, he was in a position of a spiritual leadership, and yet he struggled with sin just like everyone else, and he was very open and honest about his struggle. And here in Psalm 73, he, he shares how he secretly struggled with the goodness of God in light of the prosperity of the wicked. And I think the reason why he, he wrote this down, that the reason why he went public, if you will, with this struggle, was he wanted to show us how stupid it is to envy the wicked, since we have something infinitely greater than they do, which nothing on this earth compares. And so he begins here in his testimony to provide us some help and hope to all who are tempted at times to envy the wicked. Look at verse 1. He says, Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. Asaph began his testimony here by affirming the one basic truth that he'd always been absolutely convinced of that had that, that he had been had been reaffirmed in his mind as a result of this whole struggle that he went through notice verse 28 but as for me the nearness of god is my good and so the fact that god is good was the first and the final conviction of his heart it was the truth that he had learned to to, to live and die by even when things seemed to indicate otherwise I appreciate the wisdom of Warren Wiersbe who said this, when pondering the mysteries of life, hold on to what you know for sure and never doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. Never doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. And so no matter what happens to us in our lives, we must never ever question the goodness of God. Now, that's easier said than done, right? When things are going good, when life's going good, right? It's easy, right, to trust in the goodness of God. But then when things go bad, when the wheels fall off, right, and all of a sudden all these uh, things that you weren't expecting happen, it's easy to start to question the goodness of God. That's why my wife and I will regularly try to hold one another accountable to this. Like when something bad happens in our lives, you take the car in for the, the oil and filter change, you think you're going to be in and out the door for 30 bucks, right? And then you find out there's some major mechanical problem and they're, they're telling you it's going to be a thousand bucks. And you're just like, are you kidding me? We don't have a thousand bucks to fix our car. And so one of us hopefully is in the spirit at the time and, and, and will say, God is good. And the other one responds, what? All the time, all the time, God is good. We need to constantly be reminding of ourselves of the goodness of God. And so it's as if Asaph was saying here, hey, let's get one thing straight. I know for a fact that God is good, particularly to those who are pure in heart, to those who are wholeheartedly committed to him, who have this unmixed devotion to God. This is a, this is a rock-solid truth that has always provided a firm foundation for my life. I've always believed this. But, at one point in my life, I questioned it. And I almost slipped off this firm foundation of the goodness of God. And he goes on to describe what I would just say was his sanctification process that he went through. And it really can be broken up into two chunks here. First of all, in verses 2 through 16, we see Asaph's envious descent 
We see him focusing on the wicked and it caused him to spiral down away from the goodness of God into doubt and utter, utter despair. And then in verses 17 to 28, we see Asaph's glorious ascent where he got his focus back on the Lord and it caused him to regain a proper perspective which, which enabled him to, to, to return to the glorious truth that he'd always believed and to experience the, the joy and the peace and the contentment in his relationship with the Lord. And so let's look first of all here at Asaph's envious descent, starting in verse 2. He says, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped. Why? For, because I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he says, listen, I, I know that God is good. But I have to admit a time that there was a time when I actually began to wonder. My faith in God's goodness became wobbly, became shaky when I began to compare my life with that of the wicked. And they seemed to be much better off than I was. And this just didn't square with Asaph's theology. He, he had been raised to believe that God blesses those who obey him and he curses those who disobey him. And so in his mind, that meant that the plans of the wicked should not prosper whereas the plans of the godly should prosper. But he was witnessing the exact opposite. He, he saw evil, dishonest people prospering, and his heart was filled with envy and resentment, which was ultimately directed toward God. And so he began to question the goodness and the, the fairness of God. Essentially, he was saying, hey, God, this is not fair. Here I am maintaining my integrity and seeking to, to honor and obey you. And this other guy who's totally disobeying you, he's lying, he's cheating, he's stealing. He's not a man of integrity and he's prospering. I don't get it, God. It doesn't make any sense to me. James Montgomery Boyce says this was the issue, the problem with Asaph. He said, quote, the real problem was that God was not treating him the way he thought he should. You realize we, we put expectations on God? We, we, we expect Him to treat us certain ways, and when He doesn't, we get bitter. We get upset. He said other people seemed to be doing better than He was. He had, a, he had to struggle for a living while they coasted along without any obvious trouble. Notice what He says in verse 4, For there are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. I mean, these guys die a painless death. Their bodies are sleek and healthy. They have lots of money. They have plenty of food and clothes. They can afford the best of everything. They seem to just coast through life without ever having to face the troubles that everyone else has to face. Verse 6, Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They're arrogant. They're self-confident. They strut around like these proud peacocks. Their sinful imaginations run wild with endless ways to satisfy their lusts and their pleasures. And they freely do whatever they want, whenever they want, with whoever they want. Verse 8, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. They're constantly boasting about all that they own, all that they have, all that they do, always running at the mouth. They, they exalt themselves and they put everyone else down and they even go so far as to blaspheme God. Notice verse 10, Therefore his people return to this place 
and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? They, 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 they act as if God is not omniscient, doesn't know, what, doesn't know what's happening down here on this earth. They, they feel safe in pursuing their life of sin, and they, they get away with sin, and so they boast about it. And then he summarizes his assessment here of the wicked, verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Here's the wicked. They have it made in the shade, living in the lap of luxury, and getting richer all the time. And then he says in verse 13, Surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. So Asaph concluded that striving to live a a pure and holy life was just a big waste of time and energy. I mean, what's the point of living a godly life anyway? What what good has it done uh, to spend all these hours in God's Word and in prayer? And what have I gained from all the the money and time I've sacrificed for the work of the Lord? What, what What advantage do I have as a Christian if those who aren't get what they want, but I don't? And not only do I not get what I want, I've I, I got to deal with all these trials and, and tribulations and troubles. And in fact, it seems as if I'm being punished for trying to do the right thing. I've remained wholeheartedly devoted to God for nothing. And at that point, what happened to Asaph is what happens to all of us when we get our eyes off the Lord. Right? He was totally consumed with who? Himself. He was completely self-centered. He had a what's-in-it-for-me mentality. And he obviously had forgotten the lesson of the book of Job that we worship and serve the Lord, not because of what we get out of it, but because He is worthy to be worshipped. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen? Look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. And so here Asaph was admitting that he hesitated at first to tell anyone else what he was really feeling deep down inside. He knew better than that. He, he remained sensitive to his responsibility as a spiritual leader of God's people. And before going public with these, these negative thoughts and emotions, he had to consider the consequences. And how, how would the younger believers in Israel respond if, if one of the worship leaders turned his back on God? If, it, it, you know, if he punted his faith, uh, that would undermine all that he had taught and sung in the sanctuary all those years. He didn't, he didn't want his struggle to upset the faith of others in the family of God. He, he didn't want his doubt to cause others to slip or stumble. And so initially, he kept all of these doubts to himself. And I think it was here that, that he reached the lowest point of his spiritual life. He was, he was absolutely disillusioned, disoriented. He was wallowing in self-pity. He had lost perspective. He wasn't thinking clearly. He was on the verge of, of, of just punning it all, throwing in the towel, falling away from God. He was in a spiritual funk. You ever been in a spiritual funk? Or you just, you just can't shake it. It's just like, man, I just, 
I just feel funky right now spiritually. I don't feel like I'm in a good place spiritually. He was experiencing what Packer describes as a spell of derangement when the powers of temptation had pressed his mind out of shape. But, by God's mercy, they don't last. Notice verse 17. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Underline that verse, star that verse, circle that verse, put arrows to that verse, put a neon sign in your Bible at that verse until I came into the sanctuary of God. This is the hinge on which this entire psalm turns. This was the turning point in Asaph's struggle with the sin of envy and the wicked. He said, none of this made any sense to me. I was... I couldn't get my mind around it. It was I was baffled until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then I could see clearly again. I regained my spiritual equilibrium. And listen, brothers and sisters, listen, whenever we, we find ourselves in a spiritual funk, if you will, uh, experiencing a temporary spell of derangement, uh, whenever we're in a precarious position spiritually, we need to do exactly what Asaph did. We need to come into the presence of the Lord. Whether that's privately, through the Word, spending time in the Word, spending time in prayer, or maybe it's corporately, coming to church, coming to Bible study, going to your care group, your small group. Listen, some of you maybe woke up this morning and the last place you wanted to be was here. Why? Because you were just in a, in a funk spiritually. and it, Your heart was not drawn, right, to the Lord this morning and not drawn to God's house and God's people, but you came anyway. Good choice. Good choice. By the grace of God, you came. You entered the sanctuary of God. And hopefully God is using, right, the, this, this atmosphere in the presence of the Lord and the presence of God's people and the presence of His Word to soften your heart that has maybe become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so as Asaph worshipped God at the worship center, something wonderful happened. He began to regain perspective. His, his spiritual vision, which had been blurred by envy, came back into clear focus. He came back to his senses. He repented. And this is the point where his envious descent stopped and his glorious ascent started. And so now let's look at Asaph's glorious ascent. In verses 17 to 28, he, 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 he lists the things that he realized as he spent time in God's presence. These were the things that God brought to his mind that kept him from slipping. They provided him something to grab a hold of to, to stop this downward spiral and to lift himself out of this spiritual depression, to bring him out of this spell of derangement, to help him stop envying the wicked. What were the things he realized? Well, first of all, he realized their destiny. He realized their destiny. Notice verse 17. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. 
Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they're destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. He realized he had grossly exaggerated the prosperity of the wicked. That despite all appearances, the life of the wicked is a very precarious existence. It's as if they're, they're walking on the edge of this slippery cliff and sooner or later they're going to fall off to their death. In a moment they'll be swept away by this wave of terror that is too horrible to contemplate. Their prosperity is short-lived and, and uncertain and their destruction will be sure and it will be sudden and it will be swift. Matthew Henry in commenting on this psalm, he said that Asaph realized that the wicked were, quote, rather to be pitied then envied, for they were but ripening for ruin. We shouldn't envy the wicked, we should pity the wicked. So we realized that they were fleeting, that they, their, their lives, their prosperity simply would not last. He likens them to a dream in verse 20, like a dream when one awakes. You know, dreams are funny things, aren't they? I mean, you, you, they, they seem so real and so vivid when you're having it, but then as soon as you wake wake up, it's like sometimes you can't hardly remember what you dream, right? It just kind of goes away. And you realize, well, well, it's just a dream. And I can honestly tell you, I have never once envied someone else's dream. Have you? I mean, seriously, you go to work one day, or you know, and, and your, 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 your co-worker... Uh, maybe you're at school, your classmate, they say, hey, you would not believe the dream I had last night. It was an amazing dream. And I was this, this wealthy person and I lived in this mansion and I drove this Lamborghini and I had all this stuff and, and I lived on the lake and you know all that stuff that, that I want to do. And, 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 and you're like, oh man, that's not fair. Uh, how come you got to have that dream and I didn't get to have that dream? You, you don't get jealous at other people's dreams. Why? Because they're just a... A dream is not real. And, and Asaph realized, this, this is ridiculous. Why am I getting all jealous about somebody's dream? It's not even real. And so he realized their destiny. Secondly, he realized his own stupidity. He realized his own stupidity. Notice verse 21. He says, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. And so here Asaph confessed the sinfulness of his thoughts. He's like, man, it was just plain stupid of me to be bitter and, uh, and upset over the seeming prosperity of, of, the, of the ungodly. I was acting like a, a dumb animal who lacks any kind of true wisdom or, or, or spiritual sense. And so he realized their destiny. He realized his stupidity. But most importantly, he realized God's adequacy. He realized God's adequacy. Notice verse 23. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken a hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. And so here Asaph realized that despite his downward sinful spiral, all, even while he was having bitter thoughts towards God and questioning God's goodness and fairness, God had never forsaken him in this whole process. That it was God's protecting hand and guiding counsel that had kept him from slipping or, or stumbling completely. 
And so he recognized that God had been with him all along and would always be with him. And brethren, we need to understand and remember that the eternal, glorious presence of God in our lives as believers is a blessing to which nothing in this world can compare. And then he says this in verse 25, one of the greatest expressions of passion for God in the entire Bible. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you, God? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Can you say that honestly and mean it? That's one of my spiritual goals is to be able to say that and mean it? Because I think there are some things on this earth I desire. And I don't like that. I want to be able to have this same heart as Asaph. And it dawned on him, well, why envy the wicked when, when what I have in you, God, is infinitely better than anything that they have? Yes, they have everything they they need. They have everything they want except for the most important thing and that is a relationship with you. And I've got that. And in God, we have everything we need. We have everything we want. He is our portion. To have God is to have everything. You don't need anything else. He's enough. God is enough. One of my favorite singers is Stephen Curtis Chapman. And uh, one of my favorite songs he wrote is Magnificent Obsession. Just love that title. And the lyrics go like this. You are everything I want. You are everything I need. You are all my heart desires. You are everything to me. I want you to be my one consuming passion. Everything my heart desires, Lord, I want it to be for you. Be my magnificent obsession. See, when God becomes our one consuming passion, then sin, as John Piper calls it, he says, it loses its suicidal appeal. Our obsession for the things of of this world will be swallowed up by our magnificent obsession with God. The powerful allure of the, the lifestyles of the rich and famous diminishes compared to the superior satisfaction that we have in God. And so when we come into His presence and we taste and see that the Lord is good, that we lose our taste for the pleasures of this world. And we can honestly say that, hey man, let the wicked have their fun. Let them have their wealth, their their health, their parties, their beer, their drugs, their sex, their freedom. Let them have it. I don't want it. I don't need it because my God has become gloriously all-consuming, all-satisfying to me. And you can ransack heaven and earth and you will not find anything, anything that comes close to offering the joy and the satisfaction that I have in my relationship with God. Verse 26 He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My my body may waste away and, and fail, but God is my strength. He is all I will never need or want for all eternity. David, with words similar to Asaph, expressed his all consuming 
passion for God in Psalm 84, verse 10 and 11. He says, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold, the doorway of the house of my God, than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Why? For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. And here it is. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. In other words, David was absolutely convinced that God was not holding out on him. He was not ripping him off. He wasn't missing out on anything. Why? Because God does not hold, withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. The Apostle Paul expressed a similar passion for Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he said, I count all things as what? Loss. In compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Verse 27, just wrapping up here, he says, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So at the end of the day, Asaph concluded that, that he would rather have what he had than what the wicked had any day. Because those who reject God and attempt to live independently from Him will endure eternal separation from Him in hell. He says, but as for me, I want to be as close to you as possible. Being near you is the greatest good in my life. Again, he's back to where he started from, right? Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. And he entrusted himself to God for his protection. He committed himself to declare all of his wonderful works to anyone who will listen. And his feet were firmly back on the rock of the goodness of God. And he left the sanctuary of God ready to tell everyone who would listen what he had learned through this experience. He said that I may tell of all your works and I think writing Psalm 73 was one of the practical ways that he told people of God's work in his life and this whole spiritual struggle had caused him to be able to experience a closer relationship with God God used this occasional spell of derangement to mature him to take his spiritual life to a whole new level And if you are presently experiencing a spell of derangement and the powers of temptation have pressed your mind out of shape, be encouraged this morning that by God's mercy it won't last. Amen? It won't last. God is in the process of drawing you closer to Him. He's using all that you're going through, that, that struggle, that internal struggle, that wrestling match in your soul to grow you and mature you so you will find your ultimate satisfaction in Him and Him alone. Asaph, a famous hymn writer, Another famous hymn writer, John Newton, best known for his classic hymn, Amazing Grace. 
penned a more obscure but no less notable hymn called, I Ask the Lord That I May Grow. I Ask the Lord That I May Grow. And it's a profound poem about how the Lord afflicts us in order to grow us and mature us in our relationship with Him. Let me read for you the the lyrics of this song. He said, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. T'was He who taught me thus to pray, and He, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. In other words, he didn't ask my, answer my prayer uh, the way I expected him to. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. And then I love the last line. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. In other words, it's these inward struggles, these inwards, these, these spells of derangement, if you will. I use them to set you free from yourself and from your pride and, I, and to break, break you from trying to find joy and happiness and satisfaction from the things of this world so that you would seek your all in me. Listen, whenever we feel like all that we have is not enough, we need to remember that God is enough. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Asaph and just his transparency, his honesty with us here in Psalm 73. And Lord, we know ultimately, Lord, the key is keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured all sorts of pain, all sorts of trials, inward struggles. And while He was tempted, Lord, even as we are, He was without sin. And so, Lord, I pray that you, we would see Jesus ultimately, Lord, in the sanctuary today, and Lord, that as we, as we look upon Christ, Lord, our hearts would find contentment in Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.